The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you have a Bible this morning, please open up to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark will be in Mark chapter 2. Today we'll be reading verses 13 through 17 here in just a moment. I wonder if you've ever followed somebody and then later regretted your decision to follow that individual. Um, I'm going to share a a quick story with you. This past summer in July, my family and I, we were on vacation uh, in the mountains of North Carolina. And I decided, you know, let's let's hike some of these trails and let's hike up to the top of uh, what's called Greybeard Mountain in in Montreat, North Carolina. And so I took a quick look at the trail map. Uh, You know, the family were all sitting at the base looking at the trail map. And I think, all right, that, that looks fair, easy enough. And after all, we're prepared. I had like, I think, one, bo- one bottle of water for each of us and maybe one granola bar for each person in the family. That's all we had. Uh, but, you know, in my mind, that was, that was enough. We're, we're prepared. Let's, let's head up this mountain. Well, to make a long story short, um, after much moaning and groaning and rationing of water, the, fi- the family, we finally reached the summit of Greybeard Mountain five hours later. Um, and of course, that was just the sum. That mean, meant we still had to descend the mountain um, at that point. And so we took a shorter and easier way down the mountain. But after a total of eight hours of hiking and it was 10. OK, my wife wants to say it was 10. Um, we'll, we'll disagree over the time. But still, after a long day of hiking, let's just put it that way. A long day of hiking nearly it was about eight miles of hiking. Um, and the first half of those 11, or excuse me, 11 miles of hiking, the first half of those 11 miles of hiking was through what could only be described as either moderate to difficult terrain. Um, so it wasn't easy hiking, but we finally made it back to the house. And as you can tell from my wife's comment here just a moment ago, my family said, we are never doing that trail again. Uh, they had regretted their decision to follow me up the mountain. Well... When we make a decision to follow Jesus, friends, and I don't mean this to sound trite or a Sunday school type of answer, but when we make a decision to follow Jesus, even though I promise you if you make a decision to follow Jesus, sometimes the terrain is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard sometimes, right? But when you make that decision to follow Jesus, you're never going to regret it. There's never going to be a moment you look back and say, yeah, I I wish I hadn't done that. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at what the Scripture has to say. If you're in Mark chapter 2, say amen. All right, we're going to read verses 13 through 17. Follow along with me, please. He, speaking of Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And of the and and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time. As we look at this brief passage today, Father, we thank You that Jesus came into the world. We thank You for the birth of Jesus, and we thank You for the life and ministry of Jesus. And we thank You, Father, that He came for us and that He bid us to follow Him. And so use this now to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're a note-taker, I have a very simple idea today is that Jesus calls us to follow Him. We see this all throughout the Scriptures. Jesus calling people to follow Him. And likewise, as He did so 2,000 years ago, He continues to do that through His Word today. Jesus calls us to follow Him. I want to make three points from our passage today. And the first point is an invitation is extended. An invitation is extended. As we might expect that this is, this is only the second chapter in, in Mark's Gospel, so we might expect that this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And so to set the stage, if you will, where, of where we're at right now in his mouth, I want to just rehearse a little bit of what's happened in chapters 1 and 2. Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark starts right away um, with an adult Jesus. We don't have anything of the birth of Jesus in Mark, which may leave some of you wondering, you know, we're at Christmas time and we don't have anything of the birth of Jesus. Why are we, why are we in Mark's gospel? I, I hope to answer that possible objection um, in just a moment. But Mark's Gospel, again, starting with Jesus as a grown man, Mark starts with John the Baptist already out in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We see that in chapter 1, verse 4. And then Mark, he, he, only, he spends a, a scant five or five verses in total talking about the baptism of Jesus and His temptation in the wilderness. So only five verses. And then he dives right into the public ministry of Jesus. The first words in Mark's Gospel that we have from Jesus are these. We see them in verse 15 of chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. In verses 16 through 20, Jesus calls two sets of brothers to follow Him. We have Simon and Andrew, James and John, and He calls them to follow Him. Still in chapter 1, in verses 21 and following, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit, and He does so on the Sabbath. That's important, we'll see in just a moment. In verse 31, he heals Simon's mother-in-law. And in verse 34, he heals many others who come to him in need of healing. In verses 40 and following, Jesus heals a leper. And then chapter 2 starts off with Jesus forgiving the sins and healing a man who was paralyzed. And that brings us right to the passage that we are reading today. And so let me ask you this question. What are these things, these things that have come before, what do they have in common with today's passage? Or in other words, why, why am I bothering to summarize all of these things that have come before? You know, am I just looking for filler material so I make a longer sermon? Is, is, that, is that what we want, or just a longer sermon? That, that's, that's not what I'm doing. Uh, but there is a connection. I want you to notice two connections. These are super important as we um, try to understand what's happening in verses 13 through 17 first connection is that Jesus was regularly in the business of calling people to follow himself. This is what he did throughout his ministry. 
Sometimes those individuals would gladly follow Jesus. We see that in the cases in chapter 1 of Simon and Andrew, James and John. We see it in the case here in chapter 2 of Levi following Jesus. At other times, they said, you know, no, thank you. I I don't want to follow you. We didn't read any of that this morning, but in chapter 10, for example, there's the story of the rich young ruler who Jesus calls to follow him, and he doesn't follow him. So, first, Jesus regularly calls people to follow him. But here's the second thing I want us to notice that's happening. I want us to notice that Jesus is more concerned with people than he is with religious appearance. He's more concerned with people than he is with religious appearance. Let me explain. He heals a man with an unclean spirit and he does so on the Sabbath. Now, there's nothing at all in the Bible that says you can't heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus' healings on the Sabbath, He does this multiple times in His ministries, they're not ultimately going to sit well with the religious leaders of His day. You see, the religious leaders of the day, they had their, they had their own elaborate rules about what you were allowed to do and what you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. And if you weren't actually saving a person's life, then no healing was supposed to take place, at least in their minds. But Jesus didn't care about that. But it wasn't just religious leaders that took issue with Jesus. Or it wasn't just religious leaders that took issue with the type of healings that Jesus was doing. We see in chapter 1 that Jesus heals a leper. Now, we don't have to deal with leprosy in our day, but even the common man in Jesus' day would have feared those with leprosy. You see, leprosy was a contagious and potentially deadly disease. You know, Not that we know anything in our day about contagious and potentially deadly diseases, right? But, but Jesus, in the ancient world, so for example, when in the ancient world, if you were approaching somebody that had leprosy, the leper was required to call out with a loud voice, unclean, unclean, to let you know that you were approaching so that you could steer a wide berth around that person. You could avoid him. But here's Jesus, we see in chapter 1, in verse 41, Jesus was moved with pity. And he, was, he actually touched the leprous man. You know, no, no six foot distance, right? He actually reached out and touched the leprous man and healed him. And so we learn here in these first two chapters of Mark that Jesus called people to follow him. That's the first thing. And second, he was more concerned with people, with individual lives, than he was with his religious appearance among others. And so for the rest of this first point today, And for much of the second point, I want to say more about what Jesus did in calling people to follow him. So in our text, in our main text today, in verse 13, Jesus, he's just finished healing the paralytic. Now he's gone out to the Sea of Galilee. Your Bible doesn't say the Sea of Galilee there, but we know from the context that that's where he's at. Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. And as often is the case in the course of his ministry, a large crowd is following after Jesus. And it was his custom, Jesus is teaching the crowd. Now, we're not exactly sure, 100% sure what he's teaching the crowd, but we know that it probably has something to do with what he was teaching in chapter 1. Jesus was teaching that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe the gospel. That's what he was teaching then. That's probably what he's teaching now. But here in chapter 2, as he's teaching... 
he comes across this man named Levi. Just like Levi Strauss jeans, right? This Levi, he's the son of a man named Alphaeus. Now we learn in Matthew's Gospel that there's another one of Jesus' disciples is also uh, the son of a man named Alphaeus. That would be a guy named James. Not there, There's two James, by the way. So this, this is James, sometimes called James the Less. Not to mean that he's less worth. It just means, the word simply means younger. That this James would be younger than the other James, the James the son of Zebedee. Some people have speculated, by the way, that James and Levi, that they're, they're brothers. Uh, so there might be three sets of brothers among, among Jesus' disciples. That, that could be true. We don't, we don't know. Um, the Scriptures never specifically say that James the Less and Levi are brothers. But we do know that Levi is a tax collector. That's what he does for a living. And we know from the parallel account in Matthew's Gospel that Levi is also, he has, he has another name. Just like, so my name is Brian Keith. Okay, that's my middle name. Uh, well, Levi has two names as well. He's Levi and he's also known as Matthew. And so this, this guy that we're coming across here in chapter 2, this is the same dude who's ultimately going to write the Gospel of Matthew for us. All right, that, That's who we're uh, addressing right here. And here's something that hasn't changed over the last 2,000 years. Tax collectors were universally disliked. Nobody liked tax collectors in Jesus' day. In the ancient world, the Jews didn't like tax collectors because they saw them as turncoats, traitors to the nation of Israel. I, I won't go into the whole story here, but here's, here's a Jewish man who's taking money from other Jews, usually pocketing some of that money for himself and then giving the rest to the, to the Roman government of the day, the Roman occupiers of the day. You, you don't need an advanced degree in theology to understand why these guys were unliked in the Jewish world. But remember what I said earlier, Jesus was more concerned with people, with individual people, than he was with his religious appearance. He wasn't concerned that, oh, other, you know, if you invite a tax collector to be a part of your group, you know, people are going to you know, poo-poo that idea. They're not going to like that. You're going to upset some people if you invite a tax collector to be a part. You know, most of the Jews would have hated Levi. They wouldn't have wanted anything to do with him. But when Jesus sees him, Jesus invites Levi to follow him. He wasn't concerned about what other people were going to think. He wasn't worried that others were going to think that him as a Jewish traitor. Levi see, or excuse me, Jesus sees Levi as the person who he is. He sees a man who's created in the image of God. Jesus sees a man who is built, who was created to have a relationship with God. And at the same time, he looks at Levi and he sees a man who right now is far from God. And so Jesus invites Levi to follow him. Beloved, as I was thinking about that this week and preparing, I wondered, you know, when's the last time we invited someone to follow Jesus? When's the last time we recognized the image of God in another man or woman, boy or girl? And we invited that individual to follow Jesus. When's the last time maybe we stepped out of our comfort zone and we reached out to somebody who was different from us? Somebody that maybe our society would consider an outsider and we invited them in? 
We've been called, beloved, we've been called to extend that type of invitation. We've been called to make disciples of all the nations. Not just the people that look like us and act like us. The people who naturally fit in with us. We've been called to make disciples of all the nations. And so how are we doing with that? An invitation needs to be extended. That's point number one. Point number two is a response is required. See, a, re- a response is required. See, the invitation must be extended. We can't, we can't expect people to respond to Jesus if we never tell people about Jesus, right? We have to extend that invitation. But it's not enough just to extend the invitation. We have to see people have to respond to that invitation. Recall this. Um, so I, I'm preaching through, well, we'll get back to Romans um, later in January. But just a few weeks back, I was preaching through Romans chapter 10. Recall this passage from Romans chapter 10. This is verses 14 through 17. Just listen. He, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how, how, will, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And what, what Paul is asking there is, you know, how is somebody going to believe in a person they've never heard about? And the obvious answer is they, they won't. They, they can't even. And so we need to tell people about Jesus. But telling them about Jesus is not enough. The job isn't over when we've simply told them about Jesus. A response is required. I want to say, this might sound shocking to you, but let me tell you this. Hell, hell is full of people who know who Jesus is. Hell is full of people who have an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is. Hell is full of people who know Christian doctrine. It's not enough simply to have a head knowledge of who Jesus is. Our hearts must be transformed. And we need to follow Jesus in obedience. I've referred to that Scripture right there on the wall a number of times over the years. Uh, We call it, uh, Christians call it the Great Commission. Jesus shared those words after His resurrection, shortly before He ascended into heaven. But notice what he said. I won't read the whole passage there, but notice what he said. He told us to go into the world and make disciples. To make disciples by baptizing them. That's, that's the evangelism, if you will. Finding somebody who doesn't know Jesus and telling them about Jesus. Calling for a response. But then notice it says that we teach them to, to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. You know, what does that word observe mean? When we say we teach people to observe all that Jesus commands, it means that we teach them to be doers of the Word. Not, not merely hearers, people who hear the Word, but people who are doers of the Word. We teach them what it means for Jesus to be Lord. When your Lord tells you to do something, you do it. You don't ask if there are other options. When, when your Lord tells you to do something, you don't say, but, well, yeah, but I would rather be doing this other thing. 
When your Lord tells you to do something, you do it, period, full stop. That's what it means for Him to be Lord. He's in charge now. He's on the throne of your life, not you. Levi understood that. In this brief example right here, Levi understood what it meant for Jesus to be Lord. At the end of verse 14, Jesus tells Levi, follow me. And then Mark tells us that Levi rose and followed Jesus. Just like that. Levi didn't come up with a bunch of excuses about, you know, well, now's not really a good time, and can I do this first? Can I do that first? Levi simply, he got up and he followed Jesus. He left his tax booth behind and he started following Jesus. Friends, how about you this morning? You in this room, as well as you listening live stream or later this afternoon, whenever you're listening, Are you following Jesus? Now, to be clear, I'm not not simply asking, are you a regular attending member of this church or another church? Although the Bible is clear that membership in the church is important. But that's not the major thrust, really, of my question. When I I say, are you following Jesus? Is He the Lord of your life? Is He in charge of your life? Have you responded to Him in such a way that says, listen, I'm stepping down from the throne and Jesus, you are now on the throne. Or is your life more just a Christian veneer? On the outside, people look and say, yeah, that looks like a Christian. But on the inside, it's full of dead man's bones. So, for example, for those of you who are single this morning, Does following Jesus have any impact at all on who you date? For those of you who are married this morning, does following Jesus have any impact on how you love your spouse? Does following Jesus have any impact on what you post to social media? Does following Jesus have an impact on the language you use in your everyday life? Does following Jesus have an impact on how you spend your money? Do you see what I'm getting at here? When Jesus invites us to follow Him, He bids us to die to ourselves and live to Him. Now, we are not going to do that perfectly. None of us are going to do that perfectly. But nevertheless, it is a process, this this sanctification process, that we are more and more and more like Jesus every day. And we're making better decisions every day to follow Jesus. You know, five weeks from today, I'll be getting back into the book of Romans on Sunday mornings. In the 12th chapter of Romans, this will be the first passage we deal with. Um, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul tells us in that passage that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Living sacrifices to God. And so without stealing any thunder from that sermon, just how are we doing at that? How, how are we doing at presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God? That's what it means to respond properly to Jesus. We give Him our everything. Let's move to our final point. Point number three. is we see a relationship is restored. A relationship is restored. Verse Um, After Levi, he responds to the invitation to follow Jesus. Then we pick up in verse 15. 
And we find ourselves in, he's at Levi's house, and there's a house party going on. I mean, it's a throwdown happening here. But what, what's the occasion for this house party? The text doesn't explicitly tell us what the occasion is, but, you know, I'm putting two, or two, two and two together, and I think I know what's happening at this house party. I think it's a salvation house party. Here, here's what I mean. Levi, he, he's just been invited by Jesus to follow him. And he says, yes, I'll follow you. You're my Lord. So it, it, to use our 21st century Christian vernacular, we'd say, Levi, he just got saved. Just now, he's just been saved. He's been rescued from his sin. And Levi is now following Jesus. He's a new man in Christ. And so what does Levi do? Now, now that he's following Christ, now that he's saved, what does he want to do? He says, man, I got a lot of friends. I got a lot of friends. They're in the same line of work as I am. They're tax collectors as well. And they're, and they're sinners. They're all kinds of people. I got a lot of friends. And these, you, my friends need to know about Jesus. Look who's attending the party. Look with me there in verse 15. Mark tells us there are many tax collectors and sinners at the party. Again then in verse 16. Sinners and tax collectors. And then just so we don't miss the point, right? It's only five verses long, but three times in this passage. Tax collectors and sinners. Those are the people who are at the party. Three times in just two verses. Mark feels it necessary to tell us who's at this party. But it shouldn't really come as a surprise to us, right? That these are the people at the party. Again, Levi himself was a tax collector. It stands to reason that he would have tax collector friends. I'm a pastor. I have other pastor friends. Uh, Phil works for law enforcement. I'm sure he has law enforcement friends. Christy works for the government. I bet Christy has friends who work for the government. I, you, know, I could, you, you understand. We could go on and on with this. this it makes sense. But what is, why does Mark then say, and sinners? So, I mean, tax collectors are bad enough, and then he adds tax collectors and sinners three times. I think there's a simple explanation for that as well. I've already mentioned tax collectors weren't the, um, weren't the most well-liked people among the Jewish populace. There probably weren't many you know, upright, well-respected Jews who had close relationships with tax collectors. I mean, much less a, a whole room full of tax collectors. You know, you know, the, if you were well-respected and well-thought of, you, you, you wouldn't be caught dead hanging out with a tax collector. You know, at least for appearance sake, you didn't want to be seen in the company of a tax collector. So, and they weren't, they weren't going to hang out with one tax collector. They certainly weren't going to be in a room with a, with a bunch of tax collectors. But people who already understood themselves self-consciously, they understood themselves to be sinners. That's who they understood themselves to be. They didn't have anything to lose. What's the big deal? I'm a, people look at me as a sinner already. What's the big deal? I can go ahead and hang out. People already think I'm a low life, so who cares whether I hang around with other people they consider low lives? And so these tax collectors and sinners, they, they were a part of Levi's pre-salvation peer group. They're, they're the people that Levi hung around with before because you know, a, a well-respecting Jew wasn't going to hang around with a tax collector. And so these were the ones Levi hung around with. They knew Levi. Levi knew them. 
And Levi's been introduced to Jesus, and he knows now that my friends need to know Jesus. And so he says, let's have a party. Let's have a party, and I'm going to invite all the people to this party, people society looks down on. But most important at this party, I'm going to have Jesus be the focal point of the party. We're not just having a party for, for, for the sake of having a party. We're having a party because I want these people to hear about Jesus. And we've already heard, you know, we've already seen that Jesus doesn't really, Jesus is, he's fine with being invited to this kind of party. He's not worried so much about religious appearances. He's much more concerned about the person than the religious appearance. Now, I just I want to pause here for just a moment for a quick thought. When I say that Jesus is more concerned about people than he is religious appearances, I, I believe that's genuinely true. I think we can just hold true throughout his ministry. But that doesn't mean that Christians need to throw out wisdom when it comes to how we interact with others in this world. And so let me give you an example. Um, Billy Graham is perhaps the most respected Christian of the entire 20th century. All right. Despite his preaching to tens of millions of people across the world, there was never, never once an accusation brought against Billy for any type of sexual infidelity. Ever. Now, at the same time, over that same period of time, dozens, and I mean dozens, of other famous pastors lost their ministries due to sexual infidelity. And so why did... What was the difference between Billy? Was he just that much better than the others? I don't, I don't think he was. Early on in his ministry, he made a decision to never be alone with a woman who was not his wife. To never be alone with a woman who was not his wife. He wasn't going to ride in a car by himself with another woman. It's not to say he wouldn't ride in a car with another woman. He just wasn't going to do it by himself. He wasn't going to go out to dinner with another woman by himself who was not his wife. It, it became so famous, it became known as the Billy Graham rule. And consequently, Billy, he never put himself in either a, temp, a place to be tempted to sexual infidelity or to even be accused of sexual infidelity. Now, is the Billy Graham rule, can, can, I, can I point to a chapter and verse in the Bible and say, oh, there's the Billy Graham rule right there in the Bible. No, I it's not in there. It's, it's not in the Bible. But providentially, Billy understood he understood that it, it really didn't matter whether the accusation against him would have been true. It was simply if somebody had made an accusation against him, it could have ruined his ministry. And so Billy used wisdom to keep himself free from all forms of evil. And that, by the way, is in the Bible, that we keep ourselves free from all forms of evil. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. So we do need to, you know, Jesus... He wasn't a slave to what other people thought of him. Billy, by using that example, Billy Graham wasn't a slave to what other people thought of him as well. I'm just trying to dif differentiate that sometimes we need to use Christian wisdom in how we interact with others. But we always need to recognize, we always need to see in the other person an individual created in the image of God. And understand that that individual that we're interacting with, they have worth and they have dignity. And that worth and dignity is worth more than our religious appearance before others. Jesus saw that in others. He saw people with dignity and worth. And so Jesus, he's at this party. And notice at the end of verse 15. 
Mark tells us that at that party, he says there were many, there were many who followed Jesus. Levi's, he's saved already. He thinks to himself, I'm going to invite my friends over here to hear about Jesus. I want them to meet Jesus. And so he has a party with Jesus as the guest of honor. And guess what? People follow Jesus. Now, you would think that everybody would be happy about this, right? You would think they'd be like, awesome! This is fantastic! we got more people following Jesus. This is great news, right? Well, not for everyone. Not for everyone who's at the party. You see, there were some people at that party. They were, you know, they were standing along the wall looking and going, and they were, they were taking note of who was at that party. Mark calls them the scribes of the Pharisees. And they see that Jesus is sharing a meal with these lowlifes. And that doesn't sit well with them. But since they're, they're too cowardly to actually talk to Jesus about it, you know, Jesus, he's, they're too cowardly to go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, what are you doing? Why, why are you having a meal with, with these people? They, they, they're too cowardly to do that, so they cozy up next to Jesus' disciples, Mark tells us. And they ask His disciples, this is at the end of verse 16, if you're following along with me. They say to His disciples, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's, here's the vernacular of that. You know, doesn't He know that these are bad people? And respectable people don't associate with people like that? I mean, their question is dripping with condescension. They thought of themselves as better than. We, we the scribes, we're better than sinners and tax collectors. That was their attitude. But I want you to notice that wasn't Jesus' attitude. But before his disciples could answer their question, again, they're approaching the disciples. Before they can even respond, Jesus hears what they say, and he decides to chime in for himself. It's verse 17. Look there with me. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, he's speaking to the scribes here. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Beloved, those are powerful, powerful words. Jesus, He always knew the right thing to say and the right time to say it. And so He uses here, He uses, notice this, a medical analogy that everyone would have understood. Even people that were thick-headed like the scribes, they, they would have understood the analogy. He said, you know, the main job of a doctor is to treat sick people. You know, well, well, baby appointments and you know, annual physicals aside, the job of a doctor is to treat people who are sick, to, to make them well. That's what a doctor does. And so he transfers that analogy, that working analogy that everybody would have understood. He then transfers that into a spiritual realm. And he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And of that last phrase, I want to make three brief comments from that last phrase. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. First, why am I preaching from Mark 2 at Christmas time? What does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? Well, it's right there. It's right there in verse 17. And, and not my words, these, these are Jesus' words. In his own words, Jesus tells us, This is why I came. 
I came not to call the righteous but sinners. This is why I came. I didn't come because I was going to get all these elaborate gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's not why I came. I came rather to call sinners to myself. That's why Jesus came. That's what Christmas is really all about. Salvation has come in the baby Jesus. See, we tell this story of angels and shepherds in a manger. We tell a story of a young woman and her betrothed who are desperately looking for a place to have a baby. And the Christmas story is all of that. Okay, that's, that's, We should be telling that story. It's a fantastic story. But I want you to know it's much, much, much more than that. Christmas is ultimately about what those angels declared to the shepherds. You recall this passage from Luke's Gospel, second chapter of Luke. He says, For unto you is born in the city of David, what? A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's why He came. That's what Christmas is about. That's the first thing I want us to notice. Second, Jesus isn't suggesting here that the scribes, that they're the religious people, that, excuse me, that they're the righteous people. That these, you know, when he says, I didn't come to call, uh, came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's not saying, hey, you scribes, you guys are already righteous. I, I, I didn't come really to call you. I, I came to call these others. These, these are the lowlifes. They're the ones I've come to call. That's not what he's saying. You know, the scribes, on the other hand, they were people who looked in the mirror every day and they thought, you know, God's pretty lucky to have me on his side. That's what they thought of themselves. But let me let you know, know this little secret, and it's not really a secret, but here it is. If you're predisposed to think of yourself as religious, if you're predisposed to think of yourself as righteous, you look in the mirror and you see a righteous person, not by the way, not because you, you understand that you've been covered with the righteousness of Christ, which is the proper response, but you just look and you think, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I'm, I'm a righteous dude. Then the idea of needing it, if, if that's who you think of yourself, then the idea that you need a Savior has probably never crossed your mind. Why do I need a Savior? Why do I... I watched a video with a, I won't mention any names, so I watched a video with a very famous politician. He says, why, why do I need to repent? I've never done anything wrong. It's a verbatim quote. I, why do I, I don't need to repent. I've never done anything wrong. That's not a Christian. That person is not a Christian. I mean, after all, if you're already righteous, if there's no need for repentance in your life, then you don't need a Savior. Jesus didn't come to call the likes of you. But that's not what he's saying here. So the third thing I want us to notice is that Jesus came to call those who self-consciously understood that they were sinners in need of a Savior. That's what he's saying here. When he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying, I've come to call people who understand themselves to be sinners. Now, this is important for us all to understand. If you come in this room, you don't understand this. I want, I want you to leave in this room without understanding this. Every person on the planet, including you, including me, every person on this planet, we're born sinners. That's who we are. We are born that way. We are all 
born in need of a Savior. No one is an exception to that other than Jesus, okay? Because He's the Savior. But no one else is an exception to that. Everybody needs a Savior. And for those of us who understand that, for those of us who understand that we need, Jesus calls us to Himself. That's what He's saying here. I've come to call sinners. I've come to call people who understand that without a Savior, they are lost. That's who Jesus came to save. Friends, how about you? Do you understand yourself more in the righteous camp? Well, yeah, I'm pretty good. And God's lucky to have me on His team. Or do you understand yourself? Yeah, I need a Savior. Without Jesus, I am nothing. If you're in that second camp, there's hope for you. Because Jesus is calling you right now to Himself. If you're in that first camp, I don't mean this in a snarky way, but I mean this sincerely. I'm praying for you. Praying that you really understand that you don't belong in that first camp. You belong in the second camp. You need a Savior. We all do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You so much for Your grace and Your mercy. Thank You for Your love that is poured out for us through Your Son, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that You would help us to recognize the invitation that's been extended. And Father, I pray that there's even one here today who needs to know more about Jesus, that that individual would know that an invitation has been extended to them. That Jesus Himself is calling us to follow Him. But that requires a response. It requires, Father, that we respond in faith and that we submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ. And that when He calls us to follow Him, that we follow Him. And as we follow Him, Father, our relationship is restored. That we're brought back into fellowship with You through Your Son, Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here today that needs, needs to be restored in that relationship, Lord, I pray that today they would call out to you perhaps they would come talk to me and say they need they they want that relationship or maybe they have a friend here father i pray that we would call out to jesus father for those of us who are already in christ lord that we would just rejoice that we would rejoice in the sure and certain knowledge that jesus has saved us and that's why we celebrate Christmas. So Father, we thank You. We love You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.